All right, if you would be turning to Revelation chapter 6, that will be where we'll spend our time for this morning's sermon. Um, And the key truth that I want us to walk away with from this is that we are to witness to God's merciful and gracious long-suffering for the life of the world and minister to the suffering of the world amidst his restrained judgments. Let me say that again, because I think that's an important thing, and, and I want you to be careful that you don't go, yeah, 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 I got it. Um, because if, if, if we got it, then uh, I think things would look different than they do. Uh, and so, so let's be a people who are willing to grow, be challenged by this, and hear it in the right key. So hear the key truth again. We are to witness to God's merciful and gracious long-suffering for the life of the world and minister to the suffering of the world amidst his restrained judgments. That last part's critical and key and going to be important for us application-wise. And so before we even step into the text, we have to ask a question that we've asked before. We asked it in the Joel series, and we've talked about it in other places. But what role does God's judgment play in the redemptive story? Is it the final note to ring out? Actually, it's not. It is one of the last notes. It is a note that actually resounds along the way, but for what purpose? Well, the hope of of judgment, as odd as that that phrase would sound, is that it would draw people to him, right? Yes, it is costly to some, and yes, it is permanent for some. For the sons of Korah who were swallowed up by the earth, judgment was immediate. For Ananias and Sapphira, yes, it it was exacting and immediate. But what's interesting is you can't name but a handful of those in the whole of the redemptive story. So rarely does God take it quite that far early in the story, but he will, and this is important for us, to not minimize his judgment. So please don't hear me doing that. His judgment is uh, worthy of our grief, that there would be anybody who would suffer eternal separation from God, who would not be welcome at the table, who would not be part of the family. If we can't grieve that first, then we can't minister to the hurt of the world which judgment is going to bring, and we will be an ineffectual witness as a church. And we've seen that already in many respects. Broad church, not necessarily you specifically. And so it's important that we remember judgment is an aspect of God's redemptive love for the world, that this must be taken seriously. You who are parents, you kind of understand this a little bit, don't you? Right? What good is it if the things that you threaten never come to pass. What does that teach your child? Not to take you seriously or anything you say seriously. And it has implications not just for your threat of discipline, but it has implications for whether or not they believe you on anything else, actually. And so if we're not careful with God, we can see, as they did in 2 Peter 3, his tarrying as he's not really there, is that he doesn't really care. No, his tarrying is because he longs for the family to get bigger and he's longing for the church to join him in the work of the redemptive story. So that becomes very important for us as we read a text like Revelation 6 that has some hard things for us to hear in light of judgment. So as we step into the text Keep those things in mind. And do remember, when I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. So that's something we're we're trying to work on uh, as part of our liturgy. So uh, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 6 and hear the word of the Lord. 
Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, to the its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarii, and three quarts of barley for a denarii, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider was named Death, and Hades followed after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? All right, so as we step into this, we have to remember in the context of Revelation that things are not necessarily linear in terms of time. And so it's important that we not try to make this into a linear story, but we have just come from worship in the throne, uh, the throne room, if you remember, the worship of God and the worship of the Lamb. And so out of that, uh, the Lamb is shown to be worthy, the only one who uh, is, is worthy of God's holiness, who could actually tell, not just tell God's story, but bring it to pass. And so the lamb has begun to open the seals and John is bearing witness to these things. And so what we see in the first four seals, uh, yeah, seals, not seals as in the Georgia Aquarium seals, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But we also need to make sure that we don't miss God's mercy and long suffering in the midst of the four horsemen. And so one of the things that we want to note is who announces them, right? We, We had questions previously, what are those four living creatures doing Well, one of the things is they serve the particular purpose of announcing and having something to do with each of the four horsemen. Now, the four horsemen imagery comes from the book of Zechariah, chapters 1 and 6, and that's important to being able to understand their purpose. And their purpose 
in, in Zechariah is actually, it shows the sovereignty of God over even the sin of man. Because what we see here is sinful riders upon the horses, right? Some have argued, well, isn't it Christ on the white horse? Because he does come on a white horse in chapter 19. And in this case, no, it's not the kind of conquering that Christ is going to bring. This is actually government oppression. What comes with this king is the kind of king that uh, people were calling for way back in the Old Testament. Do remember that when uh, um, uh, the people wanted a king like the rest of the nations, they called for Saul, right? Because he looked good, he was tall, he had great hair. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to be king on that note. Uh, and so, um, so they wanted a God that would do just like what the rest of the kings did for the rest of the nations as they were coming out of Judges, right? And we would be mistaken if we were to say, well, kings are man's idea. Why is that not true? Well, Genesis 49 tells us that the scepter will never depart from the line of Judah. And so kingship was always God's idea. And a king in God's hands was, was supposed to make sure that God's law, God's worship was followed. The kings of the earth are more like Psalm 2. They try to throw off the bonds of God's law. They try to throw off the bonds of the way in which God has designed things. Why? Because they themselves want to be God. So this first horseman that comes out is the spirit, the principalities and powers of that idea, right? That you will be ruled as one who is conquered, not by someone who loves you, not by governments who care for you, as so many claim they do, uh, that they're, I'm doing this for your best interest. Um, that's, not, that's not what this is. This is actually governments who are twisted and see you as nothing more than a commodity. Unlike uh, the, the, the king of kings, Jesus, who loves you personally, who indwells you personally, who knows your name so well that it is written on his hand who knows every hair that falls from your head, the loving Father, the God who sits on the throne, who knows everything there is to know about you and cares for that and even orchestrates history to draw you nigh to himself and somehow does that across myriads of people. We'll see in Revelation 7 the promise fulfilled and that every tongue, tribe, and nation will be represented in the great chorus and worship in heaven. So unlike those kings, unlike the king of kings and unlike the king who sits on the throne, our God, these kings, they don't care about your name. They don't care about your lineage. They don't care about your heritage. What they care about is what you can do to ensure that they reign. So that's the first rider that is unleashed upon the earth. And then we see with the second horseman who comes out, um, he is on the bright red horse and he's permitted to take peace from the earth. Do you remember what we read when the announcement of the birth of Christ, what is, what is it that the angel chorus declares? Peace. They declare shalom. They declare that, that God has come in human form. It is Emmanuel, God with you. That is not what this writer brings. This writer doesn't bring shalom. He takes shalom. He takes away the opportunities for us to live in harmony with one another. In fact, he turns us against one another. He sparks war where there ought to be peace. He sparks war where there ought to be creativity and, and the opportunity to, to use our, our image bearing to, to 
bring solutions to things that would help to make all things new. But instead of us doing that, no, what, what we have been given is rule. And we participate in it, right? This is not just external to us. We, we, just like in the Old Testament, we cry for a king who's like all the other nations. We, like those in the Old Testament, instead of working toward peace, instead fight for what little we have. And instead of being able to accomplish what we would long to accomplish, instead we are at war with one another. And so in the third horseman, what we see is that this, horse, this horseman comes on a black horse. He's got a pair of scales, and he controls the economy of the world, the markets, if you will. But there's an interesting promise in here that we shouldn't miss, right? So what he, what it, what's happening here is all of a sudden, the haves and the have-nots are being divided from one another, as if being conquered and ruled by a vicious king weren't enough, as if being at war with one another was not enough. Our sin is insatiable. It even wants to take away from the impoverished. It wants to divide us even further. And so the world markets are being controlled by principalities and powers and spirits that are not of God. They cannot say, I'm not anti-free market, so I want to be careful here, but the free market can't save us because the free market only works redemptively when people are redeemed. As long as you have greedy people, which I don't know how you get rid of them because it's us. Free market can't correct everything. And you may say, well, it's still better than common. That's a different conversation. I'm just taking away the salvific aspect, which Revelation has already done. It's already told you there's only one who is worthy to open the seals, right? And it's Christ alone. Nothing that the world offers can actually bring peace. In fact, the only thing it can bring at some levels further division because it exposes our sinful nature. But notice, and this is, should be interesting to us since we just came through the book of Joel, what's not touched. It says, do not harm the oil and wine. Now, for those of you who remember from the book of Joel, why would that be important? What, what did God harm almost straight away in the book of Joel? Oil and wine. Why? Because judgment was falling upon the house of the Lord. He was correcting them. He had taken away their worship. But here, what, what we see is that God in his great mercy, remember, worship is our resistance. For you to show up here this morning, as you are, I'm sure you are busy. How many of you are behind on your Christmas shopping? I don't want to know. Because I know you ain't bought me nothing, so you're behind. Uh, and so, so <clears throat> we're busy. How many of you got family stuff you need to be preparing for? You're behind on your cooking, your baking, your, your card. We don't even, so don't be offended. We don't send Christmas cards. One, you don't need a picture of me. Uh, I, I'm, I love having pictures of you, so don't hear that as a, like a double slight. Susan scrapbooks these things. She's four years behind, now five, but thank you. We don't even, like we, we looked at each other and we, we're just like, we're, I feel like a heel. Like I, we haven't done anything to be, really be much of a blessing to other people. We've just been scrambling, it feels like. I'm sure you, you feel that as well. And yet, you've been, you're willing to give us an hour and a half of your time to worship the Lord. That's, thank you for showing up. And that's, that's an act of resistance, and we need to recognize it as such. And so what he's saying is, even though the world markets will be in convulsions and doing all this stuff, the church will still have exactly what she needs to worship the Lord, her God. And then the fourth horse, 
which is hard for me not to launch into the Johnny Cash song here, The Man Comes Around. Um, but the fourth horse comes, uh, the fourth horseman comes on a pale horse, and it's death and Hades. But notice, uh, as, as hard as it is for death to come in this way, that he only has access to a fourth of those who are on the earth. He can't touch anyone he wants. He can't touch everybody. The Lord has limited him straight out of the gate, even in the breaking of the seals and judgment. And so what we see is the long-suffering and mercy of the Lord our God, even as these horsemen are ravaging about the earth. And so what we see is sin has significant consequences, right? We, we, we do not have the liberty to, to think that the things that we do don't matter. How we govern, how we treat each other, how we love our neighbors, what we do with our money, and how we live our lives matters. This is the reality, right? And it's been the reality for a long, long time. That you can't trust human governments, that you cannot trust uh, other people, it seems, right? Uh, some of us have a, a very cynical view of our neighbors, if we're not careful. You can't trust markets and economies. Uh, those of you who have been through the crash in 2007, they're predicting another even bigger one coming. I don't know if that's just so you'll buy a subscription to their membership to help you not do that. I don't know, but, but it seems like we're screaming from the minarets all the time economically. And so uh, we also recognize that, that death, as, as the psalmist would say, we need to know how to number our days. What we do with our lives matter because... The time is short, and we need to recognize that, and it's fleeting. And so we want to be the kind of people who recognize this as reality, not in fear, but as ones who've been informed, as ones who have been warned, as ones who've been given the task to, to point to something greater than just this. Think of how meaningless this world would be if this was all there was. Now, it's important also, too, that we make the connection between the opening of the seals and the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, the last, some of the last words of Christ. Um, the, there's three places it occurs in the Gospels. Each one of them has a slightly different flavor to it, but all essentially pointing to the same thing. I do want to read to you a little bit from Luke chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 21. And, and notice the connection between what's happening here and what Christ promised would happen. This is verses 5 through 11. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, being Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So how is the church to respond to the sinful things of the world? Are we to panic? 
No. Are we to think that the things, the convulsions that the world is going through, are we, are we to think that that is beyond the sovereign control of God who sits on the throne, who was worshiped in Revelation chapter four, who holds the scroll, the end of the story or the fullness of the story in his hand? No. We of all are to be a people of great hope because we have been told by Christ, of these things. Now, you may be saying, well, Cameron, didn't, didn't this happen? Yes, in 70 AD, the temple was torn flat to the ground. In fact, it is such that uh, um, where it current, there's a mosque currently sitting over its site. And Hebrews would tell us that it's the, the end of temple worship was, was, that was the fulfillment of Christ's coming, being crucified and rising again. But did that have the final say on the Christian story? No, in fact, it cleared the deck in one sense in terms of judgment from being caught up and turning back to the old things. It was the exclamation mark on the judgment that had fallen upon the people of God, the house of God first, right? And so, uh, and so what we see is that the Lord will not tolerate idolatry. The Lord will not tolerate the, the story being um, twisted and turned around and and. and, and and poorly told, actually. And so what we see in the breaking of the seals is the actual fulfillment of what Christ said would happen in the Olivet Discourse. But what's important that we see from what Luke is saying here is that we not be afraid and that we not panic. Now, did that mean that after the temple was torn down that, that, that world governance and all that stuff got right? No, that requires the return of Christ. That's why he says the end will not occur all at once. And this is where a lot of times we get so caught up. Either we want it to be this past historical event that's finished. I don't blame us for wanting that, by the way. I don't want to go through a bunch of suffering. I don't really want to be a martyr after all. I actually would like for people to like me. You'd think I'd try harder. <laughs> I, I do. It just comes out weird. Um, and so, so, so what we are being told here is that while certain things continue, there's certain things that have been completed that evidence to us where we are, what time it is. If you would turn back uh, to the text um, and listen to what G.B. Caird says about this. He's a, a, a Revelation scholar. He says, the four horsemen are the result of human sin. And it's significant that out of all the apocalyptic disasters that he could have chosen, John has at this point omitted the natural ones like earthquakes and included only those in which human agency has a part. The point is that just where sin and its effects are most in evidence, the kingship of the crucified is to be seen, turning human wickedness to the service of God's purpose. And so where is the grace and mercy in Jesus' unleashing of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, the grace and the mercy is, is they don't have total reign. The grace and the mercy is that worship is allowed to continue, that there's, it is ensured that the people of God regard, and, and here's what's interesting. As we worry about our Christian liberty, and hear me rightly, I would love to see it kept as it currently is at minimum for the rest of my lifetime. I don't want to deal with it, if I'm honest. But other nations 
who've gone through harder convulsions. China, for instance, right? The Boxer Rebellion wasn't that long ago. 1940s, the churches essentially kicked out mission-wise, out of China, right? It ended the gospel, didn't it? No, where's one of the fastest growing congregations in the world? China, Cuba. Right? Christianity was kicked out of Cuba, you, you know, right? Communism and Christianity don't often, they're, they're not good bedfellows. And so it was kicked out, right? The church doesn't exist in Cuba, right? Who knows their history? Church is doing quite well in Cuba, interestingly. Now, not just because Castro died, because those who've come after him aren't very nice either. In other places as well where Christ's uh, church is persecuted, it, it continues to go. Japan probably comes the closest to being uh, the church being eradicated. But there is still a, a, a presence for Christ in Japan. And in fact, I just got a letter from someone through uh, MTW who's planting a church in Japan. It was a beautiful thing to see the picture of the smiling faces gathered for worship. There was about 50 of them. And it just caused me to pause and rejoice. Lord, you have not been mocked. No matter what the shogun tried. And no matter what the current folks are trying, you continue to make sure that in every place a remnant will have the opportunity to worship you. Praise be to God. We need not fear. And so, in the unleashing of the four horsemen, God is saying, I love you. This must be taken seriously. This is not without consequence. You don't get to live any way that you want to and think that it doesn't matter. We'd love to believe that, wouldn't we? But it's just not true. Turning back to the text, let's pick it back up in verse nine and see that the martyr's cries and the gracious long-suffering of the Lord our God. Notice when he opens the fifth seal, that under the altar, there's the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? That's why we sang that song at the beginning of our service to, so that we recognize that there is a, a cry that should be in us that we should periodically recognize. How long, O Lord? That Advent season is not just celebration. It's also longing and, and a season of darkness for many. And so it's not all joy. It's not all darkness either, by the way. But we want to make sure that we rightly recognize the tension of life between the now and the not yet. And so here we have a beautiful picture of the martyrs saying, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? And notice, notice the grace of God, the long-suffering of God. He says, not yet. But their suffering is not without some measure of gift from him and love from him, so he grants them the robes of righteousness. And we're gonna see in chapter seven, he also grants them Christ as shepherd, that he himself, even between the now and the not yet, is taking away their tears and their suffering as they await the fullness of those who are supposed to come in. Now, the troubling thing that gets said here is there's more martyrs to come. And notice that that is a fixed number, fixed by whom? Sovereign God. Now, we may have questions about that, but the, the best answer that, or the best perspective that we would have is that it is he who determines, not death, not Satan, not evil, not the principalities and powers of darkness. It is God who has determined how long and how many. And that should be good news to us. Because martyrdom 
And do remember, and we've mentioned this a couple times in the series, martyrdom is not just death, by the way. That word wasn't always associated with death. It was any sort of suffering that would be related to uh, uh, the word of God in any way that you would suffer for that. Death became uh, kind of the penultimate way in which one would suffer for the word of God. And as troubling as that is, we are faced with, is this a truth worth dying for? If we can't say yes to that, then chances are we won't die the, the little deaths that it requires to actually become disciples. That we won't love our neighbors very well. We won't, we won't persevere for family reconciliation because I don't know about you, but family reconciliation can be some of the hardest of all. It is a lot easier to sit down with one of you all that I've gotten sideways with than it is to sit down with my daughter who I've offended. It is a lot easier to give you all some sort of advice and suggestion than it is to call my son and say, hey, you might want to think about this. You may say, well, you're a terrible dad. Yeah, I know. I need Jesus too. And so while they are ministered to by their loving father, the time has not yet come because he longs for the family to get bigger and bigger. And notice when the sixth seal is open that this is where the earthquake comes in. And earthquakes are often a sign of the coming of the divine warrior. That when the Lord comes, the earth shakes to its foundations. You see a lot of this language in the Psalms. You see it a lot in the prophets. And we also see it as well in the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to turn back to that in just a moment. But notice all of the signs that come with it. And we saw a lot of these in the book of Joel when it talked about the day of Pentecost. Uh, just before the day of Pentecost, and ushering in the coming of the Holy Spirit. But notice how the people respond. Instead of rushing out to the Lord who has come, where do they go? Just like their father Adam, they hide. Just like their father Adam, they run from the Lord and instead don't want to have anything to do with him because they don't understand why he's come. And you may say, well, you know, coming with an earthquake is kind of a freaky thing, man. If you wanted to, like, come gently, maybe I'd listen. Well, but he did come gently in Christ. And what did the world say? No, thank you. So now he must come as the divine warrior because he loves us and wants to draw us to himself. If that's what it takes, that is how he will come. And so... Uh, the divine warrior is coming, but notice the description. This is not just the wrath of God. Who is this the wrath of? This is the wrath of the lamb. So it's important to understand that because so often we have kind of this, this mindset that, uh, that we're being saved from God, right? That there's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God. That's not true. Any reading of the Old Testament, you would see the grace of God is far greater than all of the passages you could find about wrath. In fact, there's just as many wrath passages in the New Testament as there are in the Old Testament, but we tend to kind of uh, hear what we want to hear, right? And so, so we oftentimes are deaf to the grace of God in the Old Testament, and we're deaf to the judgment of God in the New Testament, the wrath of God. But this is the wrath of the Lamb that's not different. What it's telling you is, is that Christ is in perfect harmony with his Father. That Christ's wrath is God's wrath. That his longing is God's longing. 
And that what Christ is angry about is not, not that we have messed up. What he's angry about is that there are things that are separating us from the Lord our God. There are things that are separating us from each other. There are things that are fracturing us. His anger is at sin and death. And when we, the church, fail to remember that, we treat people very poorly. So when this is occurring, when the world is suffering under the weight of fear because of the divine warrior coming, fear because of the convulsions they see in war and sin and death and markets and haves and have-nots and all these things, how should we respond? Should we be the Nananaboo-boo brigade? Trademarked. Can't use that. I just, it's mine. Can't put that on a t-shirt. Is that what we're to be? Is that we're to to roll out when someone is suffering and say, see, I told you so. You deserve everything that you are enduring because you are worthless. You are a sinner and you deserve every ounce of God's wrath. Is that that what the church should do? What should the church do? Well, the church should be ambassadors of reconciliation as we're called to be. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that we should be quick to apply the balm of Gilead. We should rush into people's questions, doubts, anger, convulsions, and sufferings. We should rush into that with the message of hope, with an invitation into a family that is willing to long suffer with them forever, how long it takes. The besetting sins of the church is we don't tolerate questions real well. We don't, we don't tolerate doubts. We don't tolerate people's struggles very well. And that's an area where we could really grow. And we could, we could really see some traction that we can dwell in. And some of you have experienced this. Uh, the disarming effect of you're sharing something very deep with me and struggle, and I'll crack up laughing. Uh, and, and some of that's just because, I'm not laughing at you, I promise. It's, it's just, it's, it's ultimately the hilarity of redemption. That these things don't have the final say, that we don't have to actually take those things as definitive and serious. They are serious in the sense that they can hurt you, but they're not serious in the sense that they can have the final say if you will but turn to Christ. And we would do well to become a place where people feel comfortable sharing their struggles and doubts and questions. Who in their right mind is going to preach the revelation and do a Q&A at some point and nix questions? That would be foolish. We did it with Joel, for crying out loud. And so one of the things we want to be is a place where it is safe for you to struggle. It is safe for you to cry in the narthex and us pray for you. It is safe for you to get angry with God recognizing that you are not sovereign and you got to do something good with that anger. We want to be a place where you are not afraid to tell us, hey, I'm struggling. And feel like we would look down on you for struggling. If that's the case, y'all got to find a new pastor because I struggle. A lot, sometimes. And I am not holy, as it turns out, except in Christ. And so as we see the world convulsing, instead of us going online and saying, see, I told you so, or, or saying it to their face, 
we should become the people who offer uh, respite, hope, opportunity for struggle, a table for people to come and sit and, and be fed well, wept with, prayed with, laughed with, loved. What's interesting is we go back to the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21 is listen to how that's exactly what Christ calls for us to do in the midst of these things. Um, this is Luke chapter 21, and I'll read verses 6 through 28. Uh, this is important for us to hear. I'm sorry, 10 through 28. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So notice what Jesus has done. He's just kind of put all those seals together, right? He's not necessarily breaking them down, but everything's occurring kind of at once. He says, but therefore all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This is the martyrdom aspect. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Did you hear that? In the midst of all these convulsions, one of the great places in which you will have the opportunity to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ the victory of the slain lamb for the life of the world will be in the midst of your persecution. I don't have a rubric for that. I don't know how to do that, but I got good news for you. Notice what he says. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Oh, that is good news. So I don't have to, I don't have, to have everything worked out and everything planned out as to how I'm going to suffer. I don't know if you're a control freak like me, but I'd love control of that, but I'm not going to get it. And notice his grace in saying, don't worry about all that. When the time comes, know and remember that I am sovereign, and I will speak through you in the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes on. So I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country enter it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, those are hard words, but again, it parallels with Revelation chapter 6. And notice again, God is sovereign and controls it all. You may say, yeah, I'd probably do it a different way. Well, yeah, but we've, we've done a bunch of stuff in a different way, and we really haven't gotten that far. There's an interesting book called The Reappearing Church by Mark Sayers. Mark Sayers is an Australian church planter and um, 
and just cultural commentator. is a great podcast that I would commend to you with a guy named John Mark Comer called This Cultural Moment. One of the interesting things that he argues is that, um, and this is worth paying attention to, that one of the things that was imbibed from the Enlightenment is that Christianity is the problem. That Christianity is the heresy that is actually keeping this world from progress. Y'all heard that in the news recently? I have. But what's interesting as he goes on is that the, the, the secular mindset that has come about is so frustrated because really hasn't gotten us where we would have thought we've gotten to by now. This just ain't utopia. We've got mental health issues all over the place. We've got all kinds of issues despite all of our affluence and technology and capabilities. And yet we continue to convulse under the weight of sin and death. And Mark Sayers argues, and I think he's arguing essentially from the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, we have an opportunity. What a great time to be alive. What a great time to be the church in America. What a great set of opportunities that we have in front of us to declare the love of Christ in a way that would call people to him and grow the family in a powerful way through the sovereignty of the Lord our God, that we get to be the church who declares the truth of the King who has come. And what, a, what an incredible thing that we get to do that with a season like Advent, with a day like Christmas, coming up Easter. All these things continue to serve as opportunities. May we use them for the good of the Lord our God. Listen to what Michael J. Gorman says about this portion of the text. He says, Revelation's visions of judgment symbolize God's penultimate, that means next to last, rather than ultimate, meaning final, activity in human history. That is, judgment is a means to an end, the goal being eschatological salvation, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in which, in which it realizes its true raison d'etre as a reconciled peoples flourishing together in the presence of God and the Lamb. Our reason for being the church, he's essentially arguing, is to minister to people. It is to step into the shadows and darkness and say to people who dwell there, come out. So how should we respond to the suffering of the world as a result of their sin and rebellion to God's final judgment? What kind of people should we be in the jobs that you have? When you hear someone has had a family member that has passed, does not being a believer change how that affects you? Does it hurt less because you, you don't believe? In fact, if they're not a believer and they don't believe they're ever going to see that person again, what will it hurt? More. If somebody loses a child that's not a believer, does that somehow hurt less? Does that somehow affect their marriage less? Are the statistics different? in marriages for unbelievers that lose a child versus believers? What happens to a marriage when a child is lost? 80 to 90% come apart. What about the loss of a job? Does that affect uh, someone's human dignity less because they're not a believer? Does addiction feel different? An affair, betrayal, distrust, loss of any kind, what should they be for us, the church, 
as we see them in those we work with, as we see them in those who are in our families, as we see them in our neighbors, what should those be? Wonderful opportunities to love our neighbor. Not in a commodified way. Not in a way that draws a line in the sand and says that my love is conditional to you based on your response to this next question if you died today. What should be the goal? That they would be welcomed into the family in full. That should be, we should be welcoming people to something because we, we let them know that we love them first. And so these things that are happening, these judgments that have come, this sin that has been unleashed in the world, this ruling of the principalities and powers that we saw from Ephesians chapter 6 and powers of darkness, these are opportunities for the church to truly evidence who her king is, to truly evidence the power of the Holy Spirit that we have received in Pentecost, to truly evidence that we believe the two great commandments and the great commission. So let us be ambassadors of reconciliation and not those who are using this as opportunity to show once again that we think we're better than everybody else. Revelation 6 teaches us a couple of things. That God's unfolding judgment is restrained and merciful in his long-suffering for the life of the world. He did not let it go as far as it would have intended to go, right? Because sin is insatiable. Evil is insatiable. Remember, Satan is not looking for followers. He's looking for food. You bear the image whether you believe in God or not, and he can't tolerate that. And so you must be destroyed. And then secondly, that we should respond to the suffering of the world by lovingly inviting them to join the beloved family in Christ as a reflection of God's grace. 